Greetings, my friends. This is Dr. Harlan Betts. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of men to the revelation of God. In our last podcast, we distinguished between ownership and possession of the land of Israel. Today, we're going to distinguish between Israel and the church. This is definitely a distinction worth knowing. First of all, we must identify Israel. Just as America refers to a land, a people, and a nation, even so Israel refers to a land, a people, and a nation. About 4,000 years ago, God called one man, Abraham, and promised him land, seed, and blessing. This Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis 12, 1-3. We'll look more at this next week. The land promise was the promised land of Israel that sits east of the Mediterranean and stretches on beyond the Jordan River. A portion of that land is now the nation of Israel. The seed promise refers to the Jewish people who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel and his twelve sons were the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Jewish people are called Israel. The blessing promise was individually to Abraham, and nationally to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then universally there was a blessing promise to all who would believe in Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abraham. Now, don't miss this. These promises are literal, eternal, and unconditional. Jacob's physical descendants, the Jewish people, are called Israel. They are often referred to as the chosen people because God has chosen them to be his people. This is declared over and over in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 7-8 says, For you are a holy people to the land your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is in Deuteronomy. It followed uh, the time when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the 400 years of bondage, brought them across the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai. They're called a holy people. They're called a chosen people. The people of Israel were chosen by God, and they were promised the promised land. They were promised many descendants, and they were promised blessings. These promises were literal, eternal, and unconditional. But enjoyment of some of these promises was dependent upon faith and obedience. Sadly, Israel as a nation was often unfaithful and disobedient, and consequently they were often disciplined by God. But God never abandoned the Jewish people, And God always kept his promises to Israel, to the Jewish people, because his covenant was literal, eternal, and unconditional. As it said in that passage in 
Deuteronomy, the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Jesus came to the earth and died a substitutionary death for all mankind and then rose from the dead and 40 days later he ascended into heaven. And shortly after that, the church began around A.D. 33 on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And most of the church and its leadership was Jewish. But the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. The church is limited to those Jews and Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But some have come to believe that the Jews have been replaced by the church, that Israel has replaced the believing Jews. The, the reason for uh, replacement theology is this. In A.D. 70, Romans conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and the Jews were scattered and seemed to fade out of the picture. Many Gentiles believed that this was a sign that because the Jews rejected Christ, God was rejecting the Jews. They believed that God replaced Israel with the church. And so they believed that all the covenant promises to Israel were really understood now to be promises to the church. This thinking is called replacement theology because they believe that the church has replaced Israel in the program of God. Let me share with you a few of the quotes from early church leaders who believed in replacement theology. Justin Martyr, A.D. 155, debated his Jewish opponent Trifo, and Justin Martyr said, The true spiritual Israel, the descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. Justin Martyr later said, We who have been quarried out from the bowels of Christ are the true Israelitic race. So Justin Martyr actually was saying that those who have placed their faith in Christ are now the true Israelitic. Israelites, they're the true descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Clearly they are not physically, clearly they're not literally, but in a spiritual allegorical way, this is what he believed. The Epistle of Barnabas, written about A.D. 100, states that the Jews have no further claim to God's promises. He says that uh, we should not say the covenant is both theirs and ours because they finally lost it. Irenaeus in 130-202 was Bishop of Lyons, an early church leader who lived around, as I said, A.D. 200, and he claimed that the Jews were disinherited from God's grace, and the church was the new or true Israel. Origen, who lived around 250, a most prolific writer of the early church, grounded his replacement theology in allegorical interpretation. For instance, when explaining that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he argued that the lost sheep are not Jews, 
who are, quote, carnal Israel, but Christians who are, quote, heavenly Israel. So again, we have this idea of this is clearly not literal, physical Israel, as we saw in Genesis 12, but they're allegorizing it, spiritualizing it, and saying it refers to a heavenly Israel. So here are the teachings of replacement theology. I'm going to share seven basic teachings. Number one, replacement theology believes says the believing Jews were once God's chosen people, but now the Jews are rejected by God and the church is God's chosen people. Number two, the Jews are experiencing the curses of the Abrahamic covenant and the church is experiencing the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Number three, in the Old Testament, God worked with physical Israel, and in the New Testament, God is working with spiritual Israel, the church. Following the establishment of the church at Pentecost, they believe every reference to Israel in the New Testament is really a reference to the church. Number four, the church actually began with Abraham in Genesis 12, not at Pentecost in Acts 2, because the church has replaced Israel, and so the promises were actually given to the church. Number five, the Jewish people as a nation have no place in God's future plan, and Israel has no promises for the future as a nation. Number six, the Old Testament still applies to the church. Most replacement theology-type churches have altars because they believe that they're making a sacrifice in the communion service and that Jesus is uh, uh, being sacrificed and you're, he's either coming with that bread and cup or he is being sacrificed in the, and the bread is his body and the cup is his blood. They also need an intercessor. So many of these churches have a priest rather than a pastor. They also believe that infant baptism replaces circumcision as a way to enter a child into God's covenant. And uh, they refer to Sunday as the Sabbath or as the day of rest. Number seven, they believe the state of Israel has no theological reason to exist. And so replacement theology churches and leaders say literal Israel, the Jewish people, have no right to the promised land. And consequently, replacement theology churches and leaders often join in censoring Israel for occupying the land. And they often favor Palestinian desire to push out the Jews and take over the land, which actually was promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob literally eternally and unconditionally. So what are some of the dangers of replacement theology? Number one is a, a, a misunderstanding of the Jews. Sadly, replacement theology helped provide a seedbed for the growth of anti-Semitism. It has a negative, it's had a negative impact on the hearts and minds of Christians. It has encouraged the contempt for Jewish people. It has recast the scripture from a Jewish book to a Gentile book and undermine the truths and impact of biblical prophecy. It's ripped the nation of Israel and the Jewish people right out of the 
New Testament, and out of prophetic future. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century and was a church leader, wrote a tract against the Jews in which he argued that the Jewish people should be treated unmercifully because they have no value and no consideration. Chrysostom, Augustine's contemporary, a famous preacher and orator, preached a series of sermons against the Jewish people. He claimed God hated the Jews because they murdered Jesus. He concluded that since God hated the Jews, Christians are obligated to hate the Jews. Martin Luther, 1483-1546, was a German priest and professor, had a great positive impact on our world in his stand against the tyranny of the Roman Church and in his stand for salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But unfortunately, Luther soured against the Jews in his later years and became a hardened anti-Semite. He wrote books that condemned the Jews, encouraged people to burn their synagogues, destroy their homes, take their wealth, put them in hard labor. And he was not alone. Calvin and others also condemned the Jews. This unbiblical attitude added fuel to the anti-Semitic fires and poisoned the minds of many Christians. And it's very sad for me to learn and understand that some of the Christian leaders actually add fuel added fuel to the anti-Semitic fires. Many, many people have called Jews Christ killers. The Bible makes it clear that the death of Christ on the cross was all part of God's plan. The Apostle Peter declares that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified, quote, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place, Romans 5, 8. It's very important that we recognize that Jesus went to the cross willfully. In fact, Jesus declared early on, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus never blamed the Jewish people for his death. In fact, Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. John 10, 17-18 We cannot blame the Jews who called for his death. They didn't even have the authority to put him to death. We cannot blame the Gentiles who sentenced him to death and crucified him on a cross. We must blame ourselves. You could say, that we drove those nails into his body. Peter makes it clear that Christ suffered for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are all responsible for his death, Jews and Gentiles. It is wrong to blame the Jews for his death. Hatred of the Jews is nothing short of raw anti-Semitism, and it does not fit with Scripture. God doesn't hate the Jews. God loves the Jews. In fact, God, the Bible tells us God loves everyone, including the Jews, so much that he gave his only son to die for them. John 3, 16. Secondly, there's a misunderstanding of our times by replacement theology. You see, replacement theology has led many to amillennialism, which means no millennium. The belief that the church, we are in that... uh, 
we are now living in the kingdom of God. Right now, during this church age, they say this is the kingdom of God on earth. But God is in heaven, and Jesus is at his right hand. But they say, well, he's ruling through the Holy Spirit in believers' hearts. All millennials believe this earthly reign of Christ in our hearts will continue until Christ returns to judge, and then we'll go into a new heaven and earth. But that doesn't fit with the Scripture. Jesus is not literally reigning on earth at this time. Granted, God is sovereign over all and above all, but Satan is referred to by Jesus as the ruler of this world in John 12, and the God of this age by Paul. Paul calls him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. We're not living in the kingdom now. It is still future. The Bible clearly predicts a coming, literal, physical, 1,000-year reign of Christ here on earth in Jerusalem, during which time Satan will be bound and Christ will be reigning. Literally, physically, for a 1,000 years. Replacement theology has led some, to, led some people to a post-millennialism and the belief that the church is in the kingdom now, and is responsible to make the world better and better until we bring about a golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity, thus enabling Christ to return and judge, and then we'll go into the new heaven and new earth. But that does not fit with the Scripture. The Bible clearly predicts that rather than things getting better and better, things will go from bad to worse, 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, and they won't be better until Christ returns to rule and to reign. Third, there's a misunderstanding of our future. Replacement theologians say there's no coming rapture of the church, no coming seven-year tribulation, and no coming thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But the Bible says there will be a rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There will be a seven-year tribulation for the church. 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. There will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, Revelation chapter 20. Fourth, there's a misunderstanding of the church. Replacement theologians see just one program, with Israel being replaced by the church. But this cannot be true because the Abrahamic covenant was literal, literal, not spiritual, not to be allegorized. It was literal, it was eternal, and it was unconditional. Dispensational theology recognized that God has a distinct program for Israel and a distinct program for the church. The church didn't begin until Pentecost in Acts 2, and the church will end at the rapture. Then God will once again be dealing primarily with the nation of Israel. And then, fifthly, there's a misunderstanding of the Scripture. Replacement theology twists Scripture in order to replace Israel with the church. Replacement theologians take an allegorical approach to interpreting Scripture. Origen, eighty one eighty five to one fifty four, was one of the first theologians to allegorize Scripture. He argues that the Bible has two meanings: the literal and the spiritual. The literal was the normal, natural sense of the words of Scripture. The spiritual was the considered to be the the higher meaning of Scripture. Consequently, the literal interpretation was associated with weaker, less studied Christians, and the spiritual interpretation was associated with the deeper, more intellectual Christians. 
So, for example, in replacement theology, Israel can actually mean the church. And the promise of earthly land can actually mean a heavenly home. And the promise of an earthly reign of Christ can actually mean a heavenly reign of Christ in the hearts of Christians on earth. But this contradicts the literal, eternal, and unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Unconditional prophecy is a huge problem for replacement theologians because there's so much prophecy about Israel and because there are so many prophecies related to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Bible reveals a coming rapture of the church, a coming seven-year tribulation for Israel, a coming victorious reign of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon, and a coming thousand-year kingdom on earth. With Jesus ruling in the promised land, on the throne of David, in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Replacement theologians had to give non-literal, spiritual meanings to these prophecies in order to distance themselves from everything Jewish and in order to replace Israel with the church. A major problem of unfulfilled prophecy for the replacement theology is Revelation 20 and the prediction of the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth that takes place after the return of Christ and before the great white throne judgment. Replacement theology has to spiritualize six things. The nature of the reign, it must just be in our hearts. The place of the reign, Jesus isn't really on earth. The length of the reign, it's way more than a thousand years. The binding of Satan, it can't mean that he is really bound. The inability of Satan to deceive for a thousand years, he is deceiving people today. The releasing of Satan, it cannot mean he's being released if he was never truly bound. You see, all of those teachings from Revelation 20 have to be allegorized and spiritualized. In contrast, dispensational theology takes every word of Revelation 20 in its literal, normal, natural sense. And by the way, the term 1,000 years is found six times in Revelation 20. In contrast to replacement theology, dispensational theology takes a literal approach to Scripture, and dispensational, the, dispensational theology recognizes that God has a distinct program for Israel and a distinct program for the church. Has, has Israel been set aside for a time? Yes. Has Israel been rejected by God and replaced by the church? No. Is God working with the church at this time? Yes. Will the church be raptured out? Yes. Will God once again work with the nation of Israel? Yes. Just as God promised, just as God, just as prophesied, God has brought Israel back to the promised land. It was almost a miraculous thing that many believed would never happen, but it happened in 1948. Just as prophesied, Jesus will come back to rule and reign in that land, the promised land of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled, literally, eternally, and unconditionally. The Jewish people who trust in the Messiah have a phenomenal future and hope. They will be with the promised Messiah, experiencing the promised blessings in the promised land of Israel. Well, that is a a wrap for this podcast. I hope this has been helpful. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, you can help us out in several ways. First, hit that follow button or like button or subscribe button so you're notified weekly about each new podcast. Second, help us reach more people by telling others about the podcast. Share this podcast with your family. Share this podcast with your friends. Third, give the podcast a five-star rating. You know, from the beginning, we've chosen to keep Wisdom from Above both ad-free and cost-free. If you do want to donate to this podcast ministry, you can do so at teachingtotransform.org. That's teachingtotransform.org. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at harlanbetts at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message on my Facebook page, Wisdom from Above with Dr. Harlan Betts. Thank you for listening. I am honored that you've chosen to partner with me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above.